today, as Andrew mentioned earlier, we are going to be in the book of Galatians, Galatians in the New Testament, and we will be in Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 to 7, Galatians 4, verses 3 to 7. If you need a Bible, you can grab a black pew Bible in front of you. And as you get to Galatians 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verses 3 to 7, please stand with me as we read this passage together. <clears throat> Listen now to God's word. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. May God bless the reading of his word, please be seated. One of the things that I have been negligent about this Christmas season is starting a fire in our fireplace so that we can make s'mores as a family. Uh, we really don't use our fireplace for any other purpose, but I think using it once in a while for this is worth it. Making s'mores in the winter has been an informal tradition in our family for the past several years. And recently, one of my kids has been reminding me that I have been derelict in my duty because I just haven't found the right time or opportunity in our schedule to get that fire going. We actually own a tabletop s'more maker as well, but, but, um, and, and that's much easier to use, but you know, it's just not the same. There's something sublime about roasting marshmallows over a real fire. There is inherent anticipation as you sit there waiting patiently for the fire to form and then sit there waiting with your arm extended for your marshmallow to get to just the right size and have just the right color. And when you finally pull that marshmallow out of the fire at just the right time, you know. Because it leads to something delightful. It leads to that satisfying sensation of being able to, to squeeze a marshmallow between two graham crackers and just begin to see it ooze out from the edges and then savoring that thing bite by bite. Making s'mores is a, a process full of joyful anticipation. And it's an exercise in perfect timing. The same could be said of baking chocolate chip cookies in the oven and pulling them out at the right moment or planning a surprise party that, that turns out just as you expected. Something brilliant is in store, but it only happens when the timing is just right. That is what happened at Christmas. Christmas is the story of Jesus' birth in a manger and all the events surrounding it featured shepherds and magi and a worried ruler. But Christmas is more than that. It is actually the story of God's textbook timing. It's, it's a story of years of anticipation 
finally being satisfied. It's how God in his sovereignty sent his son to release us from bondage and receive us into his family at just the right time in his divine plan. Christmas is when God deemed it right to pull the marshmallow out of the fire and the the cookies out of the oven and to unveil the surprise gift of his son to the world. Through Christmas, we, we find more than just a tale of two young Jewish parents giving birth to a newborn among a cast of unique characters. Through Christmas, we find the, the revelation of God's plan to set humanity free from bondage so that we might be adopted into his family. And that's what the passage we just read from Galatians 4 tells us. If you haven't already, I invite you to turn with me there in your Bibles. And as we jump into the middle of Paul's letter to the Galatians, you should know that it was written to a group of churches located in modern-day Turkey. And it was written to correct the false teaching that had been circulating about how people were saved. Some people were teaching and some were believing that actions like circumcision were necessary for salvation. So Paul wrote to help the Galatians recapture the essential message of the gospel. The the message that salvation comes through faith alone in it, and it leads to a life of freedom and, and joy, not a, a life burdened by following rules and regulations and traditions. And in chapter 4, Paul wrote to the Galatians about the great privilege of having become sons of God in Christ. He, he wanted the Galatians to understand that they had been given access to all the benefits and freedoms of being part of God's family. And for them to go back to their old way of living under the, the regulations of the law was, go back, was to go back to a life of slavery. And in the middle of our text, Paul directed the Galatians again to Christ and how he came at just the right time. In God's sovereign plan to make this new life possible. Our text this morning gives us the, the story behind this story. Christmas is... When the fullness of time had come for God to initiate his work of redemption. And as we look at these verses, I I want you to take note of how essential Christmas is and what it can and should do for you. First, I want you to notice from verse 3 that without Christmas, we're slaves. Without Christmas, we are slaves. And Paul begins verse 3 with the words, in the same way, we also. And Paul is referring back to the first two verses of chapter 4. And it might be helpful if you just glance at them for a moment. Actually, let me just uh, read them for us. Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 4, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Paul essentially says here that before Christ came, the Galatians were like heirs of an estate during childhood. They lived with the expectation that one day the whole estate would be theirs because they were sons. But they didn't yet experience all the benefits of what they owned because they were still children. And though they had the title of heir, they were no different than a slave in the house. They they were still ordered around by guardians and managers. They were under restrictions. They didn't yet have freedom. They were still waiting to be released by their father at the right date. 
In this same way, Paul said that the Galatians, too, were heirs in verse 3. They were heirs of the promises God had made to Abraham to, to bless the nation that came from his descendants and to give them a land and to make them a blessing to others. Now, Paul was almost certainly writing to people from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds in this letter. Here in verse 3, there seems to be a bit more of an emphasis on the Jews, given the context of them being the direct heirs of that promise and having been under the burden of the law. But Paul could have been thinking of Gentiles as well, given the fact that they were also included in the Abrahamic covenant and that they too were, in a sense, under the curse of the law. The point is that before the incarnation of Christ, the Galatians hadn't yet received their inheritance. They were still children. And Paul is making the case that before Jesus came, before Christmas, they were all like children waiting for the promise of freedom and blessing, but unfortunately were still living like slaves. And notice that when he writes, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, he points out the slavery. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the word for elementary principles in the Greek is stoicheia, and it can be used in different ways. Now, one, way it's used to, uh, one way it's used is to refer to the basic components of something. So it can be used in this manner to describe the underlying elements of the natural world, the elements from which matter is composed. And in those days, people wouldn't think of the periodic table, but they would think elements like the earth and the air and fire and water. The stoichia can also be used in this manner to describe the, the fundamental principles of a, of a subject or area of study. Think of a letters of the alphabet or maybe the notes in a musical composition. Or even the basic principles of, of God's word can be used in that way. Alternatively, this word can be used to refer to the supernatural powers that are in control of this word, world. Uh, it could be translated something like uh, elemental spirits if it's used in this way. And that's why if you're reading from the ESV, you'll see a footnote in your text to that effect. Now, people have argued for all these different meanings in this verse, and a, and a decent case can be made for each. Paul could be saying that we, humanity, Jews and Gentiles, have all been enslaved to demonic forces. Uh, this would be in line with what Paul writes later in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4, when he warns the Galatians against turning back to those that by nature are not gods. And in those verses, Paul, Paul writes in, in personal terms and, and seems to be referring to demons. Given the proximity to our verses, it's very possible that he had these forces in mind. This would mean that we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the, the world, the demonic forces of, of Satan before Christ came. And, and there is a sense in which that is true. But Paul could also be saying that we have been enslaved to basic human traditions and philosophies. Or potentially he could be saying that in some way we have been enslaved to the basic elements of the world. Not, not the physical elements, but in a metaphorical sense, the basic elements of this world that epitomize life without Christ or, or life before Christ. And I think that's a good way to take it. That's one of the common ways this word was used in Greek literature. And if we take it in this sense, Paul is saying that all of us were enslaved to a kind of, of basic 
elementary worldly life. We were enslaved to a, a suboptimal existence governed by the natural principles of this world that simply do not measure up to the fullness of life that is in Christ. For the Jews, they were enslaved under the yoke of the law. And to them, that was a, actually a badge of honor. It, w- it was the very meaning of their existence. They, they didn't view living under the, the Torah as a burden, but a privilege. But in reality, that kind of living was exhausting, and, and it didn't lead to fullness of life. That's why Jesus told the Jews in, in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The the Jews were, were yoked to the law. They were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world that taught them to trust in their works and in their obedience. On the other hand, the Gentiles, while they didn't have the same access to the law, also lived under worldly philosophies that exalted the ability of men and could not save. And so they too were enslaved. This is the the state of humanity apart from Christ. We are all enslaved to to following the principles of this world. We're we're all trying hard to live up to certain worldly standards. We, We get anxious. We feel overwhelmed at times. We we don't have a holistic vision of what our purposes. We we push the thought of God to the back of our minds, allowing the the demands of the present to take center stage. And many of us push ourselves to our limits in trying to find meaning and and worth and value in this life. We're we're like drummers who will practice until our hands bleed in the pursuit of perfection, or, or athletes who will put their bodies on the line to perform at their peak. We throw ourselves into our studies or, or our work to achieve a certain level of success and, and comfort. We, we try to improve ourselves. We, we work out. We, we volunteer. We, we diet. We, we we're good citizens so that others will be impressed with our lives. We give ourselves up in relationships in order to feel loved, in order to feel accepted. We, we, and, and because we experience temporary pockets of happiness and joy along the way, we, we don't realize that we are actually enslaved. We're living according to the elementary principles of this world. And though there are good moments, there is no abiding hope. We feel no real freedom. We, we feel the, the need to work harder and and to do better, and to be more attractive, and to achieve higher levels of well-being. We feel like we need to have that growth mindset. Sometimes we we feel like if we can just get our life perfect enough, we will finally be happy. This is the endless and tiring hamster wheel of life that the world offers to us. It's a life that never satisfies. It's It's a life of self It's a life of slavery. It's a a life lived under bondage to this world. Do you feel tired, perhaps? Feel a little burnt out this season? Do you sometimes feel like you don't know what your real purpose is? Feeling weary? Perhaps aimless in life right now? Are you feeling like you still need to do something more? 
probably because you're living like a, like a slave. Because this is our natural state. It was the, the state of the Galatians before Christ came. And it is our situation today if we don't know Christ or we don't remember Christ. Without Christmas, we are all enslaved. We, we, we are all slaves. But we don't have to be. And that's what we see as we move on to verse 4. Without Christmas, we are slaves. We, we ain't doing so well. But something magnificent happens at Christmas. And, and with Christmas, we can be saved. With Christmas, we can be saved. I look at the beginning of verse 4. It says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. When the fullness of time had come. That means when the time was just right. When the total period of time in God's plan was completed, God sent forth his son. Uh, Christmas was the moment in history when God judged that it was fitting to begin his work of redemption. God had long planned this work. He had planned to choose some before the, the foundation of the world to be objects of his redeeming grace. Even in the Garden of Eden, he had already scheduled to send one who had bruised the heel of the serpent that had led men into sin. God's promises to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him was, was part of this plan. God's giving of the law to Moses was part of this plan. Christmas wasn't an afterthought. It was a long time coming, and that's why Jesus, when he began his ministry, he, he said in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news about me. Certainly Jesus was the fulfillment of God's preordained plan. But, but why did God specifically send him into the world roughly 2,000 years ago? Why not 2,500 years ago? Or why didn't he wait until today? Well, in one sense, we don't know the mind of God. We can't discern all of his reasons. But we do know that when Jesus came, it was at a time when Israel had been in bondage under the law for about 1,400 years. It was at a time when humanity had experienced centuries of, of life, lived in, enslaved to the principles of this world. And it was a time historically and culturally when the life and message of Jesus could be spread far and wide. Remember that the, the Romans were in charge at this time. And though the Romans could be vicious, they had brought a certain measure of peace and security to their expansive empire. They had built many roads that allowed for people to travel freely and easily. And the world had begun to, to shrink a little bit under them. And remember that before the Romans, Alexander had established the Greek Empire. And had brought much of Greek culture to the world. One of the things he did was to unite much of the world under a common language. And thus, Greek was the lingua franca, or the dominant language of the day. Even, even the Romans used it as they ruled. You know, people had a way to communicate with each other, or to each other, with relative ease. And the gospel could re be recorded in the New Testament in a language that was accessible to many. And in the Jewish world, it was a time when in which synagogues had been developed throughout the Mediterranean as outposts of the Jewish faith. And these synagogues taught the truth that there was only one God and 
they provided a foundational worldview that would align with the message of Christ. When Jesus was born, you could say that the time was full from a historical and cultural standpoint. The message of Christ could be shared to people with hearts that had been prepared in an empire that had provided the infrastructure for the spread of this good news. And the time was also full from a biblical standpoint. We know that when Jesus came, he fulfilled many prophecies in the Old Testament. But in particular, we know that the time was just right because of the recent birth of his cousin John the Baptist. John would be the necessary forerunner of the Messiah prophesied in Isaiah and in Malachi. And we know that the time was just right because Caesar Augustus had issued a decree for everyone in the empire to be registered in their hometown. And that led Joseph and Mary to leave Nazareth to travel to the city of Bethlehem where Jesus would be born in fulfillment of Micah 5.2. And we know that the time was just right because a certain Herod was ruling locally and had in fury ordered the death of all the newborns in Bethlehem because he was scared of the Messiah and that meant Joseph and Mary needed to take Jesus to Egypt for a time in fulfillment of God's promise to bring his son out of Egypt as foretold in Hosea 11.1. You see, the birth of Jesus came at a, at a unique time in history. It came when humanity had already suffered for a long time under the burden of being enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. It, it came when the good news of Christ could be spread and communicated in a manner never before possible. And it came when just the right conditions had been providentially arranged by God so that his word would be fulfilled. Christmas happened. In the fullness of time. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son Jesus into the world. Now, look with me again at verse 4 and notice his qualifications. First, we see that Jesus is the son of God. He is the pre-existent second person of the Trinity. He, He shares the divine essence of his father. From eternity past, he has been there. Jesus is, is not a created being. Many of you know John 1 well, but he writes there, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made, anything that was made. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And as God, Jesus wasn't subject to the same sinful depravity as all of us when we were born into this world. Because he was divine, and Jesus could be the, the perfect, sinless Savior we needed. And yet Jesus was also born of woman. He came out of the womb of Mary. He was a, a real man with a, a real mom. He was fully human, so he could stand in our place to be the substitute we needed. And he was also born under the law. Now, he wasn't enslaved to the law as we were, but he was still subject to it as a man. But Jesus lived in obedience to God's law. He followed its commands without fail. He he even satisfied the penalty of God's law through his death. Paul wrote back in Galatians 3, 13, he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus was just the right Savior. He was the Son of God and fully man, and he fulfilled all the requirements of the law. And Jesus was sent at just the right time. And verse 5 tells us that he was sent to redeem those who were under the law. 
He came to liberate us from the power of sin. He came to release us from bondage to the law. We were all under the law. We were under a curse. We were under sin. But God sent his son into the world at Christmas to redeem us. To purchase us out of slavery to the elementary principles of the world. Jesus came so that we might be saved. But notice that we aren't just saved from bondage to the law and from sin through him. We're also saved to great privilege. And, and that's what we see in the second purpose of Jesus' coming. With Christmas, we can not only be saved, but we can also be sons. With Christmas, we can be sons. Look, look at the very end of verse 5. Paul writes that the, the second purpose of Jesus' incarnation is so that we might receive adoption as sons. Oftentimes at Christmas, we look back with sentimentality and fondness at the silent night where away in a manger, baby Jesus was born to save the world from sin. And that story of his birth is riveting. It's powerful. It's, uh, that nativity scene is a scene of holy wonder. And I agree with another preacher who wrote that even the coldest, scroogiest, grinchiest hearts are warmed in the act of peering back into the midst and imagining the sacred birth. Yet sometimes at Christmas we're, we're, we're fixated so much on the past and the joy that we have over the forgiveness of sins because the Savior has been born that we miss out on the fact that there's more to it than that. Christmas isn't just meant to be a reflection upon Jesus coming into this world to save us. It's also meant to be a reminder of the tremendous privileges that we have access to as God's children. When we, when we stop in our thinking about the message of Christianity at forgiveness and being freed from the penalty of sin, we, we still run the risk of living the rest of our lives under the burden of living a good life. We, we can think of the gospel as saving us from sin, but not as transferring to us the full rights of sonship in Christ. So, so we can live almost as if God has put us on probation. He's released us from confinement, but we still need to be on good behavior if we want to stay out of prison. And that kind of probationary grace is a false half-grace. When, when we are saved by Christ through faith in Him and repentance from our, our sins, it's not just salvation from our sin, but it's adoption into God's family. Uh, Tim Keller has written, we need to travel to an ancient slave market to appreciate redemption and to an ancient wealthy household to grasp the concept of sonship. Only together do they give us a picture of what Christ has accomplished for us? When God sent his son, he sent him in order for us to become his sons. Jesus came not just to forgive, but to give us access to the family of God and all its benefits. And, and one of those benefits is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6. It says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. And notice here that Paul's main intent is not to outline the order of salvation. He's not necessarily saying that after we are saved or become sons, then we get the Spirit of God. 
Because Titus 3, 5 tells us that the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates. The Holy Spirit gives us new life. He brings us into God's family. Here Paul is simply making a connection. If you are part of the family of God, then you also have access to the Spirit of God that God has sent into our hearts. One of the great privileges of adoption into God's family is that we are fundamentally changed. In human adoption, a child enters into a new family, and there are certainly new benefits and a new legal status and new relationships. But there is no fundamental inner transformation. Yet when we are adopted into God's family, He changes us on the inside. We become new creations. And and that happens because of the Spirit of God. The Spirit dwells within us. He gives us a new nature. He transforms us. When God sent His Son, we were able to receive new status as His sons. But when God sent His Spirit, we got the opportunity to experience that sonship in in a personal and transformative way. And this brings us into a new relationship with the Father Himself. It allows us to cry out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is an Aramaic term of endearment. The Swedish pop group didn't invent it, okay? This is an old word, connotes warmth and affection and confidence. There is a, a closeness, yet reverence to it. Some disciples would call Teachers that they loved and respected, Abba. The nearest term that we have in English might be daddy, but sometimes we use that word flippantly or casually, and Abba has none of those shades of meaning. It is a term of love and comfort and protection and great respect. Why did Paul focus in on this word? Why did he single out this unique Aramaic term? Well, he probably did it because this is what Jesus called his father. In the travail of Gethsemane, Jesus said in Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father. When he was praying to God in the garden, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba, Father, is the cry of the Son in distress to His Heavenly Father. It's Jesus' way of calling upon His Father in His hour of need. It is a cry that is full of intimacy, independence. But notice that it's a cry. It's a response to difficulty. It's something that is said in the midst of hardship. And when Paul writes that because of Christmas, because of Jesus coming Into this world, we have access to the Spirit of God by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He is essentially saying that we enter into that intimate and loving relationship that Jesus had with his Father in heaven. We can approach God as Jesus did. We we have his rights of of sonship, and, and we have the right to call out in the midst of difficulty and need with confidence that he hears. I know many of you are going to be seeing family in the next couple weeks, and I know some of you don't have the relationship that you would ideally desire with your father. I know some of you don't have the relationships you would ideally desire with other members of your family. Sometimes gatherings around the holidays can be stressful and hard, and they can be discouraging. Sometimes these gatherings bring back bad memories. They bring back 
past trauma even. Be reminded this Christmas that if you are are a Christian, you are part of God's family. And no matter what your earthly life or your earthly father is like or your earthly relationships are like, you have the great privilege of being able to cry out, Abba, to a father who hears and understands and cares for you. If you struggle this week or the next week, when you're around your family, just think in your minds, Abba. Remember that term. Bring it to mind and let that remind you of the intimate relationship that you have and the great privileges that you have as a son or a daughter of God. This this story of Christmas is, is about a newborn son, but it's also about how you can be a son of God. It's a story of rescue from slavery and adoption of sons. And that's why Paul writes in in verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is what God has done through Christmas. He is the one who sent his son when the fullness of time had come. He is the ultimate cause behind our sonship. He makes us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you understand the great significance of Christmas? When the appointed time came, God looked upon this world that was in bondage to the elementary principles of fallen living and he told his son that it was his time. And he sent him into this world to be born in a humble town, to to humble parents and to live humbly under the law. He, He sent him into a world that would mock and abuse and kill him. He sent him on a mission that would be so difficult that Jesus himself would be forced to cry out to him, Abba, in a garden. But he sent him knowing that he would raise him to life to sit at his right hand. And he sent him so that many might be freed from slavery. He sent him so that we might receive his spirit and become his children. This is the grand story of Christmas. It's a story of God's perfect timing. Maybe some of you are waiting for something. Waiting for a spouse, you're waiting for a child, you're waiting for someone to ask for forgiveness, to say they're sorry, you're waiting for the pandemic to be over, you're waiting for work to get better, you're waiting to find a job, you're waiting. Remember that God always acts at just the right time. But Christmas is also a story of God's desire. He desires to rescue you out of bondage and make you his child. He he wants you to be free from the burden of, of living like this world. And he wants you to be able to call him father and to experience all the benefits of being part of his family, both in this life and in the life to come. Every toasted marshmallow, every warm cookie, every surprise present holds a little Christmas in it. Because those things remind us of the fulfilled anticipation of something wonderful. Christmas is the ultimate fulfillment of a promise anticipated for ages that came at just the right time so that you might be saved and so that you might become sons of God. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we come to you because all of us are needy. All of us need you and we need 
the life and death and resurrection of your Son. We need your Spirit to change us, to give us new life. Oh, Father, if there is anyone here that cannot truly call you Father, they're not a child of yours, Father, I pray that you would help them to see and understand the great story of Christmas, to to feel their enslavement today, their enslavement to this world, and to, to desire in their hearts that they want to be freed, and they can be freed through faith and repentance in your Son. Oh, Father, that, thank you that at just the right time, when the fullness of time had come, you acted. You acted for our good. You acted by sending your Son so that we might be saved and we might become part of your family. Oh, Father, help us to rejoice in all the benefits that we have as sons and daughters of yours. We pray these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.